This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Madhuri Vijay, author of the novel The Far Field. Vijay's work has appeared in Best American Non-Required Reading, Narrative Magazine, and Salon, among others. Vijay's novel, The Far Field, tells the story of Shalini, a privileged and restless young woman in Bangalore, India, who travels to the northern region of Kashmir, which is embroiled in conflict. Shalini goes in search of a man who was once a traveling salesman who befriended her and her mother. Her travels occur in the wake of her mother's death, and Shalini is looking for answers that may never come. We began the discussion with Vijay talking about her interest in this story about a young woman on a journey in the politics of India. It does really seem to me that the far field is a product of my entire life up to this point. So to specify a single event or kernel uh, that led to the writing of the book was very difficult for me, and I don't mean that to sound like an evasion. Um, What I will say is that while I was growing up in Bangalore, which is a city in the south, it is a very large, uh, very metropolitan place. Uh, The population at present, I think, is about 8 million people. While I was growing up in this environment, uh, I was not thinking about other parts of the country. I wasn't thinking about Kashmir, for example. It was hardly mentioned now that I think about it. There were vague mentions in the news that all sounded the same. There were, um, you know, the odd comment or platitude from an adult that told me nothing. My history textbooks didn't really mention it. My teachers didn't really mention it. And so I grew up without much of a sense of Kashmir or what was happening there. And this was especially poignant to me because uh, the conflict in Kashmir in its present iteration and I are almost exactly the same age. So there was a, a, a really troubling irony in that. And at some point, I decided that I would write a novel about it. So if the genesis came from anything, it came from that sense of anger and bewilderment and the desire to no longer know nothing about it. As I think many people in India do. They know little, um, not enough. Their notions are formed by popular media, which can be, which can sometimes be incomplete. So your novel is about Kashmir, but it's couched through the story of Shalini. And Shalini is a woman who's in her young 20s, who's grew up with a mom and dad and only child, pretty privileged in Bangalore. Her mom dies. But as we see Mm -hmm. her growing up, she, her mom and her befriend this salesman who is named Bashir Ahmed. And he is from Kashmir, but comes down to Bangalore to sell his wares. And in the book, we go back and forth between when 
Shalini was young and had this guest in her home and then a search to find him in her 20s. I was really struck by something that you were just mentioning, so I wanted to talk about it, which was this disconnect. And you you put it into Shalini's character, but it was really the disconnect that she experienced that you're talking about between regions of India that also have to do with class and religion. And it is a very big country, but it seems like bigger than the country and the geography itself is the gulf that you experience between people with their religion and their class. And I'm wondering if if I'm correct in this and if you can talk about that a little more. I think that is correct. Uh, I think that uh, differences in backgrounds such as you describe caste, class, and region can, especially in India, it can create uh, an almost insurmountable gulf between people. And Shalini certainly experiences that where she simply cannot understand um, or doesn't have the capacity to understand the position of another person. And it happens more than once. However, I do think in Shalini's case, there is also a very personal uh, reason, particular to her, that makes her the way she is. Um, she has grown up in a family, well, with a mother whose presence in her life was so overwhelming that it caused her, I caused Shalini, I think, to develop a kind of defensive insularity. What I think I mean by that is she tends to respond to the world rather than act on it. And that comes from having a parent who is unpredictable, who is eccentric, um, who can do or say anything at any moment. And you have to be ready to meet that with a response of your own. And I think Shalini has grown used to waiting and watching the people around her for clues as to how to behave. And sometimes she reads the clues better than at other times. But it was very important to me that her character not simply be a function of circumstance or background, um, which I think people like to people like to boil down characters in novels and sometimes other people in real life uh, to a set of circumstances. But this obviously is a short-sighted way to look at not just a fictional character, but anybody living in the world. And uh, we are products of all of those things. Uh, but yes, we're also products of our particular characters and our families and uh, the events that have taken place in our childhood. So all that she is, is a result of all she has been through. We see her as a child where she began very close to her father and then sort of abandoned him for her mother. And her mother was much more hot and cold. Shalini was either sort of the son that 
her mom focused on or she was like a dark knight that her mom gave the cold shoulder to. So she had to navigate this with her own family and also growing up and having maybe bad experiences or making bad choices with boys. Mm -hmm. And um, so she is the product of all that. And I'm wondering for you, what was she based on or, or what themes did you want her character to explore for you? Like why was... Shalini the way she was? Why was this the character you created? I don't think I created her character for a particular reason. All that I know about her character, I only learned in writing her character and looking at the thing that I had written. So I didn't set out in any way to write a character that uh, conformed to certain themes or that brought out certain ideas. Uh, That, to me, is an the antithesis of of writing fiction. Uh, I I wrote her character in a kind of uninhibited way. And once the novel had a a complete form, then I was able to look at what I had made and to to see where the resonances were, to see which notes slept up more than once. That was how I approached the novel. Insofar as her character, I mean, the things that I think about when I think about her are uh, the distance between what one feels and what one can say. Uh, there are many times when she ought to say something and she does not. And those times are disastrous. Uh, and also the idea of of longing for a home and a family and trying to m- map on to every person she meets some kind of familial relationship. And those are the kinds of, those are the major themes, I suppose you could call them, uh, that I think about when I think about her. Yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me the most about her character was that her agency in her own life was limited. I mean, she had enough agency to say to her dad, you know, I'm going to Kashmir. I want to find this friend that we once had, although she didn't admit that's why she was going. But that mm-hmm. overall, she was very lost and she was looking for something, but she wasn't totally actively looking for it. She was like a kite in the wind out there saying, inviting the wind to push her where it will, as if the randomness of life will give her meaning and purpose. And I can relate to that, because sometimes when you don't know what you want, you just hope that you'll get pushed in the right direction. Sure, I I completely agree. Uh, I do think that she is lost, that she's looking for something that she can't name, even to herself. And that leads her in directions that are very likely misguided. Uh, But as a writer, I was also thinking in terms of uh, resisting and even criticizing exactly that kind of narrative you're talking about, where somebody who is lost and confused uh, decides that by going on a journey, she is going to find well, the the phrase is find herself, right? Find oneself uh, or find some great life-changing truth or at least 
you know, be told that one is a good person or one is this or one, you know, to find some kind of definition of one's character. Um, and usually these trips take place uh, in, you know, picturesque, poor countries. And there is a kind of uh, vicarious affirmation when you look at uh, the people who have nothing and you think, well, I, you know, you, you feel sort of buoyed by that. I, 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 I do know that there are lots of stories like that. Lots of novels begin like that. Lots of memoirs begin like that. And I wanted to write a book that adhered to that structure, but it was, it was in some ways a direct criticism of it because Shalini doesn't learn anything grand. What she does learn is very difficult to deal with, very dark. Um, and what she learns about herself particularly um, will haunt her for the rest of her life. One of the things that I walked away with is Shalini is is deep into this village in Kashmir when she goes to find Bashir Ahmed and she befriends his family and basically lives with them. She's experiencing their life. She's seeing the difficulties they have in in living in what's essentially sort of this charged area that's sometimes a war zone. And questions come up, such as who are our friends and who are our enemies and who can we trust, Um, especially when there's Mm -hmm. bigger forces going around you. Like in Kashmir, you already have this sort of endemic conflict between the Hindus and and the Muslims. So that's already going on. So you have religion and you have people in power and people who aren't power. But I sort of walked away wondering that a lot of the questions about the book were about alliances and trust. That's a great way to put it. Alliances is a, is a good word. Um, w- one of the things that I wanted to make very clear is that when you're living in a place that is sometimes racked with conflict, that doesn't mean that that is all that there is to life, right? Because people live and continue to live um, regardless of the what is going around, on around them. And people, you know, get married and they have children and then they talk and they, they, the actions and activities of a normal life continue. So... That was very important to me to write about. Um, the second thing, and and those in, and um, normal life includes friendships, uh, and and so you know, alliances are necessary between human beings, no matter how difficult and complicated a situation is. There is you know, some people have wondered how you know if this is such a Uh, conflict zone, how could she have been taken in by this family and why did they trust her? And I think the answer to that is there is, just like there's no one version of the United States, there's no one version of India and there's no one version of Kashmir. Um, And this is partly due to the fact that, you know, Indians don't know too much about daily life in Kashmir because it isn't, we, our news only reports the the conflict side of things. And so there are different regions in Kashmir that are affected 
in, in as far as daily life goes in different ways. And um, many times in the novel, people keep asking Bashir Ahmed about the Valley of Kashmir, Srinagar, and the, the Dal Lake. And he keeps saying, I'm not from there. Right? He's from an entirely different area uh, that is very remote. And so it, it experiences the conflict differently, um, where there are still villages of you know, Hindus and Muslims living side by side, or you know, other villages of Hindus and villages of Muslims living um, that are you know, in proximity to one another. Um, and when you, I mean, it, it is human relationships are essential <laughs> for human lives. And so regardless of what's going on around, people do have to forge alliances. They do have to decide who to trust and who not to trust because that is just, otherwise life could not operate. And this idea of the necessity of trust and friendship and connection, despite all of these um, terrible, violent things, was something that I wanted, I was interested in writing about. I think, too, it's it's true in regular life, but maybe it's heightened in, in conflict zones or in, in war zones where nothing is completely as it is. Like you might have a really good friend who's a good friend in all ways, but maybe there was one betrayal in the past. Maybe you don't even know about that betrayal and someone else finds out about it, which is, you know, in your book, um, Shalini is able to find out things that some of the people there might not know. And that you sort of have to live either not knowing this betrayal or maybe on some level knowing it, but being comfortable with it because there's a bigger survival story at hand. No, it makes, it, it does make sense. And I think also Shalini has to decide whether or not to divulge what she knows and risk, um, risk destroying an alliance between two people that may not be perfect, but does have some use to both of them. And yeah, so and and you're right. These these are choices we make in all our lives, and sometimes we make the wrong choice. Shalini had that with her father because you know her mother has died. She leaves her father. Her father's a very successful businessman who's very wrapped up in his business, and she says she's going on mm-hmm. this journey, but she doesn't tell him exactly where and, and why she's going. He might know. I wonder if you could talk about that, their relationship, and and. That aspect. Sure. Uh, you asked me earlier about themes, um, and and what I realized I was writing about um, fairly fairly late. I think somebody else probably pointed it out to me was uh, secrets and the secrets we choose to hold on to, and those we choose to divulge. And. I think in the world that Shalini grew up in, the one with her mother, secrets were power. Secrets and unpredictable behavior was a form of exercising control over your surroundings. And she, in some ways, has acquired that habit this habit of secrecy, because to reveal yourself to other people is to make yourself vulnerable to them. 
and she doesn't tell her father where she's going, perhaps because she doesn't want to wound him and bring up the name of Bashir Ahmed, who her father has some reason to wish to forget, Uh, but partly because she likes keeping secrets, because secrets remind her of her mother, who liked to keep secrets. And uh, the relationship that she has at the end of the novel with her father is not well, I hope, I hope this is how it it is seen. It's not a relationship that's entirely free from secrets, but it is a slightly more honest and open and tender one. You go back and forth in the novel between Shalini's childhood, where Ahmed is present in their house mm-hmm. and her relationship, and then her journey. So I'm I'm curious about that because it allowed you to span a large period of time but also have control over the revelation of things in your story. The reason that I went back into her childhood initially was um, well because I had to explain who Bashir Ahmed was <laughs> and that was in the that was part of her childhood. But then I found myself continuing to go back to her childhood because there were aspects of Shalini as a child that I really liked and that were absent in the adult. Um, as an adult, she is she's closed off. In some ways, she is a little bit emotionally distant, and it was there was some it was it was somewhat a relief to me to go see her as a child and to um, feel the the warmth and the love that she has for her mother and uh, and, and to slightly a lesser degree her father, um, to feel her agitation and her constant evaluating of the world. It seemed so much more vibrant and alive when she was a child than when she was an adult. So in some ways it was almost to, to, to give myself some relief to open up the story a little bit. Uh, but then I realized that those two things, her, her, she is as a child and who she is as an adult, are utterly inextricable from each other. There's a scene where it's almost the intersection or maybe an inciting incident that helped spur Shalini on later to go find her friend. Towards the end of the her childhood section, Bashir Ahmed has been coming to visit. He has finally met the father. And he's been gone for a while and comes back, and he's fallen on really hard times in his village. The conflict is is getting deeper, and he doesn't have a place to stay in Bangalore. He actually stays with their family, with um, Shalini's family, for a little while. And while he's there, her father is very entranced by meeting someone from this other region. It's as if he's from this other world and wants to have a dinner party. And they have a dinner party that mm-hmm. goes very badly. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the father wanted to do at, at this dinner party and, and the reactions and and what, for you, the me- some of the meaning in that scene was. The dinner party scene was always essential for me. And I think that, in some ways, is the heart of the book. And I work very hard on it and it was it was very difficult for me to write um just because everybody in the scene wants something very badly and all of those things are very different and everybody in the scene has has a secret 
and it was a scene very, very much, very full of tension, and all of the tension settles on this narrator, Shalini, who is at the time 13 or 14, I can't recall. Yes, so Bashir Ahmed has come to Bangalore after having essentially run away from his village and his and, and the and the conflict. He is living with them. And Shalini's father wants to have a dinner party where he invites his friends to meet Bashir Ahmed. And I think of Shalini's father with with a lot of affection. I think he is a very essentially a good a good man, but as a younger man he is also very sure of himself and very sure of his politics and very sure of politics in general and very sure of the nation and what the nation is and ought to be and um what is what is what is patriotism, what is nationalism, what is all of what he 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 has very definite opinions. Which is, uh, if I may say, not an uncommon masculine trait. <laughs> and so he wants Bashir Ahmed to confirm his opinions to this crowd, which Bashir Ahmed refuses to do. And therein lies the the great conflict, I think, of the book. We talked a lot about secrets and that sort of thing. And towards the end, I believe it was Shalini who was saying this and not, I mean, it's told in first person, so it's always her, but I don't think it was a different character. She was saying, ours was always a story of cowardice. And I was thinking earlier, you had said one of her issues is that she doesn't speak up at the time that she should, which is, could be. Uh, an offshoot of cowardice. But I'm wondering if you could talk about that line and that concept. It is. It was difficult, in a way, to choose to write solely from her perspective. I knew it was a risk because to write from her perspective means that you are bound to the way she, has, she sees the world. And she does not see the world perfectly. She, has, she lacks nuance in some ways, she misunderstands and misrepresents some things. But I thought to include another perspective, say to then write an entire section from Bashir Ahmed's point of view, or to write an entire section from Riaz's point of view, Bashir Ahmed's son, or to write a section from the fathers or the mothers, would would probably have made it an easier book to stomach but would have made it, in my view, a book with less integrity because I wanted to this to be an interrogation. <laughs> I, can't, I, I dislike that word, but uh, I, I wanted it to be... No, I think an interrogation is fine, and I mean that in the kind of... Um, in almost a, a lawyerly sense or a, or a detective sense, an interrogation of one woman's soul and she is doing the interrogating. And the conclusion that she comes to is not a perfect conclusion because it is, um, well, there can be no such thing. And again, it is a, it is a, she's grasping at straws in some ways. But she does come to this idea that if there is a, an impulse that has ruled her family, it is 
this idea of turning away, either not saying the thing that you ought to say, not doing the things you ought to do, um, which can be construed, I suppose, as cowardice. And it was important that she arrive at that conclusion and that it should not be an easy conclusion. And I don't think that readers need to fully believe her. I don't think that they fully need to uh, approve of her. And I don't, I don't have any, um, I didn't have any ambitions for anyone to be, to be rooting for her because this wasn't that kind of book. She is asking herself essentially the question, who am I and what have I done? And the answers were never going to be easy. Yeah, it's interesting because, and I think in some ways you answered it and you said earlier that she didn't really change. But I was thinking about after reading it, like that her outward journey was to find Bashir. And inwardly, what what was her journey for? I was wondering that. I'm not saying I didn't come to my own conclusions, but I'm just wondering if that, mm-hmm. if you have an answer that you would want to share. What was your conclusion? I think she was more comfortable in her own skin when she got back. I also thought that I wasn't necessarily sure that her notion of maybe just putting herself out to the wind and seeing what happens next would end. I didn't think she had determined what her path would be at all, but I did think that Mm -hmm. she probably knew herself better, even if that wasn't uh, her changing. I think you're right. And I think if I had had her become some kind of social activist, it would have been incredibly false and incredibly pat and and entirely, on my part, cowardly. You, You do things especially when you're young, and then you live with them, right? And that in itself is a kind of growing up, just the living with the thing you have done every day. And I didn't see any reason to to say more than that. Can you read a passage that influenced you as you were writing this? Absolutely. I can, I'm going to read the first page uh, of Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, a novel I have loved for a long time and whose mark on the book I think anyone who reads the book will be able to see. I stand at the window of this great house in the south of France as night falls, the night which is leading me to the most terrible morning of my life. I have a drink in my hand. There is a bottle at my elbow. I watch my reflection in the darkening gleam of the window pane. My reflection is tall perhaps rather like an arrow. My blonde hair gleams. My face is like a face you have seen many times. My ancestors conquered a continent, pushing across death-laden plains until they came to an ocean which faced away from Europe into a darker past. I may be drunk by morning, but that will not do any good. I shall take the train to Paris anyway. The train will be the same. The people struggling for comfort and even dignity on the straight-backed wooden third-class seats will be the same, and I will be the same. Tell me why you chose that. Well, it gives me chills. 
there is in this passage a sense of irredeemable guilt, a sense of having to live with something for the rest of one's life, a sense of stagnation, uh, and, and incredible tension. It's also vast and utterly beautiful and sad. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yes. This, I, I worked on the beginning of The Far Field a great deal because I, could, I had a hard time getting the tone quite right. And the reason that I, I chose the Baldwin passage is because you'll be able to hear some of, the, some of why I chose that passage because it really did put its mark upon the passage that I'm going to read right now. This country, already ancient when I was born in 1982, has changed every instant I've been alive. Titanic events have ripped it apart year after year, each time rearranging it along slightly different seams. And I have been touched by none of it. Prime ministers assassinated, peasant guerrillas waging war in emerald jungles, fields cracking under the iron heel of a drought, nuclear bombs cratering the wide desert floor, lethal gases blasting from pipes and into 10,000 lungs, mobs crashing against mobs and always coming away bloody. Consider this. Even now, at this very moment, there are people huddled in a room somewhere, waiting to die. This is what I have told myself for the last six years, each time I have had the urge to speak. It will make no difference in the end. And do you want to talk a little bit more about why you chose that? Sure. Like the Baldwin passage, it has, or at least I tried uh, to imbue it with a sense of space. I wanted to have a beginning that had enough scope, enough depth, uh, enough range of feeling to contain the rest of the novel. I also have thought a lot about the relationship between a nation and an individual, and it seemed important to me to start the novel on the scale that world events are usually calibrated on uh, and then to narrow it down into a very human story about a family or really about two families or three but to always have in the background this large entity called the country and to ask myself and to have Shalini ask herself, what is the relationship between those two things? Where do you write? I write at an eight-foot uh, carpenter's bench, a workbench that I bought at Home Depot. It's made by a company called Gladiator, 
which I like to think of as an appropriate metaphor for writing. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I have to exercise. And so I usually go for a run in a nearby forest. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband, who is also a writer. How have you dealt with rejection? (laughs) With defiance and by continuing to do the work. That's the only way to respond. And what is your favorite word? This was hard for me because I had to choose a language first. And so I cheated and chose a word um, that has ties to two languages. Uh, the word is, is catamaran. I've always loved it. And it comes from two Tamil words. Uh, one is kattu, which means tied or bound. And the other is maram, which means tree or wood. So kattamaram is literally tied wood. And it's one of those pleasingly practical words that also sounds beautiful. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Madhuri Vijay, author of The Far Field. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.